0: So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu, had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought, age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man The breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom. Let God refute him, not man. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have more, no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I, too, will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside, I am like bottled-up wine, like new wineskins, ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man, for if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to kids' church today. What? Oh, yeah. Um, Rachel's going to lead us in a song that um, had come to me during a season of hurt. Uh, I had stumbled upon it in my own life. And I thought it fit with Job well and didn't fit with Job well because each of uh, Job has this um, particular mindset that there is no answer, I think, in the end. But um, this one calls us into praise even in the midst of hurt.
2: heart, take these tainted hands, wash me in your love, come like grace again. Even when my strength is lost, I'll praise you. Even when I have no song, I'll praise you. Even when it's hard to find the words louder, than I'll sing your praise. I will only sing your praise. Take this mountain weight. Take these ocean tears. Hold me through the trial. Come like hope again Even when the fight seems lost I'll praise you Even when it hurts like hell I'll praise you Even when it makes no sense To sing louder than I'll sing your praise I will only sing your praise, I will only sing your praise, I will only sing your praise. my heart burns only for you, you are all, you are all I want. And my soul waits only for you, and I will sing till the morning has come. And my heart burns only for you. You are all, you are all I want. And my soul waits only for you. And I will sing till the morning has come. And I will sing till the morning has come and i will sing till the morning has come we sing alleluia we sing alleluia we sing alleluia the lamb is overcome please sing with me we sing alleluia we sing alleluia we sing alleluia the lamb is overcome we sing alleluia we sing alleluia we sing alleluia, we sing alleluia. The lamb is overcome we sing alleluia we sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb is overcome. He is overcome.
1: Thank you for playing that this morning, Rachel. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom has been a bit of a text that's been driving us sort of this um, season in the summers when we go through the books of wisdom. Two summers ago, we did Proverbs. Last summer, we did uh, Ecclesiastes. And this summer, we're doing Job uh, to finish next summer with Song of Songs. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the The idea that there is something stronger and greater outside of myself, outside of just knowledge, outside of just gaining things that can drive me into understanding and knowing and wisdom um, is core to each of these books in a different way. Um, what I like about that song that Rachel sang um, that i that I don't like like about it. <laughs> um, is that it, it draws us into, in a similar movement, we see in many different instances, songs, musical pieces, uh, literature, is this sort of drive towards dissolution and then coming back to praise. That like we keep, we keep at moments in our lives through loss, pain, anguish, trial, um, we come to these moments of sort of, in which all we have left is praise. Um, what's, To be careful about that is first, um, if we were to write a fifth friend to Job, today we have the fourth one in Elihu that Chris read for us, um, that might actually be a point that one of them makes to be rebuked. (laughs) Um, You know, if you can just finally let go and trust in this. It's not an option for Job because Job is one who's been upright, who fears the Lord, and is proclaimed innocent by God. And yet, in the midst of our own sufferings, and our own trials, um, often in my life, um, when a song like that speaks to me or the one we, we do with joy in a different way or something like that, it's not hard to trace it back to my specific actions or errors that I've purposely made. And in that case, Job's friends would often be right. They would be right to say, You can't maintain your innocence. This is what you've done wrong. And I would say, Fair, but help me. (laughs) Which is maybe where Job's friends also go wrong, is because knowing why people suffer isn't helping people with their suffering. Knowing that I might be suffering something because of my own bad choices, my own accord, my own thing I've done. may give some perspective, but I don't think it always does the work that we hope it will do. And there's often this thing, I've, I've long been frustrated by this in um, American Christianity that you know it all makes sense someday or when we get to heaven, it all makes sense. And, and it seems to me like that if life is, is like a math problem in that way, is there real joy in it? Um, I think some people take comfort from that and I don't want to to rob them of their comfort, but to me it's like even if there was an explanation For some terrible thing that's happened to you, or imagine the most terrible thing that's happened to somebody else, um, would it feel better in the end? Or is there at the end of the book of Job, after God's second speech, I spoke once, I spoke twice, I shall speak no more. All of this is too wonderful for me. Is the revelation that we're awaiting in the fullness of time, that everything fits together like a puzzle, or is it something that overwhelms us in its beauty, its awe, its wonderfulness? Um, I don't have the right answer to that question, but I do think these are books questions that are raised by the book of Job. Um, this week we have Job's fourth friend, Elihu, and is weird In a lot of ways, because one, he's not mentioned at all until this point. The three other friends are mentioned as they come to him and sit on the ash heap and see that Job is so disformed that they do not recognize him in his mourning and in his pain and in his loss and in the skin wounds that he has. Those three friends come, and they sit with him in silence for seven days. And as I've tried to reiterate many times, Job speaks first. And as good of a friend as I think I am, that I might be able to sit in silence with people, The speech that Job gives in Job's three is one that asks for a bit of a rebuttal if you're, I think, conscious as a friend. I mean, you might say, that's your pain and I sit here with you. But when somebody says, I cursed the day of my birth. I wish that I was no more. I think a lot of us are right to say, maybe some words might help here. Maybe an added perspective might do that. And so Job's three friends walk through it. And what happens though, unfortunately for Job's friends is that they start off sort of like, you know, here's a dream I had, here's some wisdom from the elders, this, that, and the other, and it continues to ramp up in that they won't, um, their frustration mounts with Job. They get more and more angsty towards him. He gets angsty back, he gets angry back in some sense in their dialogues, but but they keep sort of having to defend again and again. They don't say their piece and say, you know, let's leave it at that until this final chapter that we're Kim, or Chris read for us, at start at 32, they give up, give up differently than letting Job live into his own um, thing. Uh, Kelly smiles because, like, sometimes she just gives up with me, and that doesn't mean I'm right, um, uh, although I take it as such. Um, but that we have these ways of sort of, like, his friends, then they get angry. And one of the things that came up last week that, that becomes clear maybe in the Elihu speeches too, is that there's a question when we read these stories, and it's a question for us too, is are they protecting God or are they protecting their system of how they understand the world works? Are they protecting this sort of ways in which the scale works in this way? And Job's threatening of the scale is too great for them. Look, if what you're saying is true, Job, all the ways in which we understand the way the world works aren't true anymore. That's a terrifying place to be. Um, I think oftentimes when, when we're confronted with suffering, um, I think I said this last week, it's a reflection of our own self and how we deal with it too. The suffering person is in some sense a question for me. And it's a different question than when I am suffering, which is, which raises interesting Um, insights and how we sort of walk through that. But I think Job's friends and Elihu have the sense in which sometimes it's hard to say whether they're protecting God or protecting what they believe is right and true about God or whether they're protecting a system or idea of understanding of how the world works. And I think the question remains for us too. We draw our little systems to understand how we think everything should even out. We take offense when it doesn't go that way, and that's our way of sort of making sure everything is fine. And so we, we talked to ourselves, and it, it was funny, um, I, was, I think I said this last week, I was hanging with a therapist um, last week, and as a question a therapist would answer, have you run into any of the interpretations that um, Job's friends are sort of like demons trying to give him advice? I said, I've not seen that one. I said, I consider them theologians. <laughs> which when you think about it, is maybe closer together than you. (laughs) Um, Because theologically, we build these things to control in some ways. Some of them allow for freedom, but some of them just try to even everything out. Um, Elihu, um, he comes on the stage as one who hasn't talked before. He says he's the young one. He's also called angry four times, which makes you question the wisdom that's going to come from this one. What happened right before this is Job talked about... um, where is wisdom found? Um, we dig deep, we find treasures, but how do we find wisdom? And then Job, in, in 31 talks about his, or 30, talks about how he had an ordered world, how the system worked for him. In verse in chapter 31, he talks about how the system falls apart. We go into disorder, disillusion, um, lostness. Um, we lose our sense of north and south. We begin to float away. And what happens, and this is um, uh, an interesting thing, is uh, these are the five stages of grief. Um, and Job, in the end, um, in 32, uh, 31, he finally comes around to not having any meaning not having any acceptance, not having any unity of story again. He sort of lays his case before God one last time that God should vindicate him, that God should come, that God should answer him for the injustice that he is going through, but he has not yet reached um, acceptance. Now, the problem with the five stages of grief is, one, um, some people think it operates like this, which is hard to read but the middle is the shock event, and then you move through the stages linearly and you come out on the other side. The woman who invented the five stages of grief thought that was a terrible way to understand the five stages of grief. You don't walk and you go, today I'm in denial. Tomorrow I will be in anger. The next day I will bargain, and then following that, I will reach depression and acceptance. Um, She didn't think that they were linear, and if anybody who's been through grief or you've watched somebody go through grief, Denial is often first, but anger can come way after bargaining, um, and anger can come before bargaining, and anger can appear 40 years later. Um, the stages of grief sort of move in different ways. And, and, and so in some sense, if you were sitting with Job with this mindset, he certainly has not reached acceptance of what has happened to him. Now, what I would say in the modern world is therapeutic way, we would be wrong, Job is not to reach acceptance for what has happened to him because he innocently suffers. And for him to accept it um, without recourse with with God appearing on the scene would be to um, give up on God in some ways. Which I think is an interesting thing in our suffering is is what does truthfulness require? Because Sometimes, for me, I think it's easier just to say, I must have sinned and let it go and and process it that way. And yet, what does it mean to say that I won't accept this? Now, what's interesting, um, uh, first off, the woman who invented this also later said that the the sixth stage was meaning, Um, that meaning would come out of this. Uh, I don't think she thought that there was a guarantee you'd reach meaning, but that meaning would be one that comes out of this. uh, so you have these, these sort of stages of sort of moving through what, uh, what the suffering was and what it caused, um, uh, sort of coming to sort of a unified sense. But this um, Elihu, um, coming out of nowhere, he actually is the only one that has some sense of a proper name for an Israelite. Um, the others are so-and-so from this. Um, Elihu is called Elihu, son of Barak the Buzite and of the family of Ram. It seems like he's the only one with a Jewish Israelite name, too, which raises interesting questions about him. One of the reasons why I think one of the big questions in in all the commentaries I read, I guess, is why Elihu? Why do we need Elihu? His three friends have basically said much of what Elihu said. Elihu comes on the stage as a younger, angry man. Um, He's sort of... um, when I asked my professor who taught Job about him, um, he said that he just sort of like belches into the scene, um, which I thought was unfair, but is um, a common understanding of who a Leo is. He just sort of like um, bloviates, just sort of like makes a scene of himself in the middle of this. And you'll see it as you, if you read through his speech several times, he's like, listen to me. Um, listen to me. He'll, he'll he'll sort of beg to have his hearing. And what happens is is, is all of Job's friends got a response. Elio doesn't even get a response. Now, one of the ways, narratively, it might make sense to have Elihu is is Job claims that God needs to come before him. And if God shows up right then, it kind of makes God a bidding agent of, of Job. And so to have a friend in the middle who just sort of extends it so it doesn't come right away at least provides some sense in which Job can't just um, ring a bell and call God to answer him um, because that would fundamentally I think we as Christians would develop a way of like here's the proper pray to ring the bell so that God will answer you um, sometimes I think God keeps these things complex for our own protection. Um, but he, he sort of, and it is correct that Elihu, Elihu repeats a lot of what has been said too. Um, after he, he defends why he should speak for about a chapter and a half, he does sort of get into some of what he wants to say and a lot of it's already been said, but he does raise a very interesting and hard question, which is the role of redemptive suffering. More than anyone else, he seems to believe in that God can instruct and teach you and keep you safe through causing you to suffer. Um, This is sort of one of the things he comes back to. And and interestingly enough, um, in the tradition, so not in the modern commentaries, both Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin really find Elihu the most mature of the speakers. He has a deep trust in the providence of God. God has ordered the world in this way, that we are to learn from the things that happen to us, that they keep us from death, that they keep us safe, that, that even in the end, um, there's the, the question that drives the book of Job is does Job fear God for nothing or because its faith works out for him? Elihu also sort of says, um, are we gaining by fearing God, by doing what God wants? Um, now, what's interesting in the book of Job is that God is the one who doesn't ask that question. It's the hasatan, the Satan, the accuser who asks that question. God seems to want to have a relationship with us in positive ways, and on top of that, um, has put a hedge around Job and blessed him. Um, so there's this, this question of which Elihu can become more like the accuser in heaven and there are times in which he sets himself sort of up as the mediator between all these things and there's a danger in that the quote on the back of the bulletin today um, uh, the truth doesn't need to be defended uh, it's like a lion it needs to be let loose is that right Shelley Leo's challenge is that he wants to come into this scene and defend God. His friends have been more defending, this is the way things work. Leo wants to defend God. Now, this is the point of of that quote, which comes from St. Augustine, is this idea in which the truth in that way does not need to be defended. It needs to be let loose in the world. And so much of what we do as Christians, I think, is try to defend the truth, so much so that if you weren't one, you might begin to question: Do they believe the ways in which they've come to believe in this truth, or do they believe this truth? Um, have they they built up a system more than have they come to love and find God in the truth of what they are going through? And so Lehu um, comes and, and sort of tries to sort of referee the situation, as it says in the beginning. Um, uh, he was also angry. he was angry um, with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with his free friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him, that, that they have this way of sort of moving in. Um, he sees that Job has, has not spoken well of God, and he sees that his friends have been unable to refute him. And of course, that's, they tell us he's young but like only a young person would be like, I will step into the middle of that and win both sides of this argument. Um, to which at my age, I'm like, fair. Uh, in 10 years, I'll be like, how arrogant. Um, uh, but, but that is the way in which Elihu sort of comes into this situation to sort of correct God and the three friends. Um, but uh, David asked me before today how I was feeling about today's sermon, and I was like, not well, because... I've spent so long with these people giving advice that we don't take as the correct advice. Um, you spend, Brian pointed out a couple weeks ago, that Job's one of these books of the Bible where we keep hearing theologies and understandings of God that are wrong. Um, and not only that, they're offered in good, good faith. Um, they're not offered, um, like if you look at... Uh, uh, some of the idolatrous things that come up in the Bible, there it's often like, we know those are bad. Um, with Job's friends, it's a dialogue, and it's a dialogue about what has happened to one of their friends, but we keep hearing and hearing again. And so the question of Elihu comes, and he's got the longest dialogue of all the people. His dialogue is, is longer than God's by a couple verses. Um, and so he's one of those ones he really, David would have told me, probably did, why don't you just skip him? Um, and I said, it's, f- it's five chapters. You can't just skip that and come out on the other side. Um, and I wish I'd taken David's advice. Um, uh, cause it's hard to, to sort of read again the things and particularly, um, I'm not sold, I'm sympathetic to Calvin and, uh, Aquinas's love of Elihu and, in saying that, um, uh, there is a role for suffering. That's what we read from Shelley this morning, is that suffering produces hope. Um, that that God suffers, or God causes those to suffer whom he loves. He disciplines who he loves. That, that's, a I think, a deep truth to my life. Um, and I think largely it becomes uh, through, I think, that that gives me hope to sort of go. I think what Paul says in Romans is right, that suffering produces hope. Um, And yet what we find um, is that suffering also breaks people Um, suffering can can be the thing that brings so much dissolution that you can't make it through Um, in these in these stages you never make it to acceptance let alone meaning Um, we just find ourselves drawn into this Um, one of the things as i was thinking about suffering as well this week is uh, if you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, in life there is suffering, the cause of suffering is desire, to end suffering is to end desire, and to end desire follow the eightfold path, which is a different way of sort of this. Um, but but it's often that that many of religious questions, one of the reasons why I think people believe the book of Job is so old, is that so much of what religion is, is life is suffering. Um, and so we have sort of an in that way. Now... Um, Christianity or Judaism begins with good news first. God called order out of creation and blessed it and caused it good. The default understanding of creation is not its brokenness or its flawedness, but that it's been blessed as good. Somehow it's been turned to brokenness and flawedness. Um, but we live in a world of suffering Um, But the cause of suffering is desire, um, which you can see in Job's story, is the cause of his suffering is one that he believes he's right. He has desire to be proved right in court. And the second is he has desire for what he's lost. But the solution um, in Buddhism, which is different than the solution of Christianity, is to then begin to rid yourself of desire. It's to disentangle yourself with the world and the meaning of it. Um, This is, I think it was... um, G.K. Chesterton pointed this out, but why Christianity has um, its God on a cross, eyes opened, asymmetrical, tortured, uh, if you're looking at a, a crucifix, whereas Buddhism has an inwardly-reflected, closed-eyes, symmetrical, balanced God. Um, what I think is interesting is many of us in the West prefer the second image to the first image, and yet it is Christianity that finds redemption in the suffering um, Jesus' love and desire for the world to be as it should be is what brings it back to rights. If he were to throw that off, he might be able to find enlightenment in a different way, but that is not the Christian story. The Christian story is its love and desire for the world to be restored. Um, And so that, that sort of sets up one. There's, there's another one which I wanted to talk about, which is C.S. Lewis's idea of suffering. But pain assists, uh, uh, insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is from The Problem of Pain, um, which came out, I think, in 1941. Here's a different quote from C.S. Lewis, though, after his wife had died. Now, C.S. Lewis had lived through suffering before. Um, He had fought in World War I. His mother had died when he was young. One of his best friends dies. But after his wife dies, he writes this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you are as an interruption, as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and a double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more apathetic the silence becomes. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house." Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And seeming that it was as strong as this, what can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of pros- prosperity, and so very absent in our time of trouble? I tried to put some of these thoughts to see, he calls his friend, this afternoon, who reminded me of the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know, but does it make it easier to understand? Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe in such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so is this is what God really like. So this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. How often we feel caught between these two worlds. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world, said C.S. Lewis and Elihu. When the pain of the loss of his wife, and he journals through that, happens, darkness reigns in a house that once used to have light. This is not a question of maturity. This did come out after, but a question of um, perspective and how hard it is to find meaning in suffering, Um, how hard it is to find in the meaning most suffering to us. And I've often said, and maybe you've heard me say it before, but in my times in my life, I think worse, and I think C.S. Lewis agrees with this at the end of the second quote, I think it's worse to say that this is God after all. God does not want good for me than it is to say I don't believe in God. I think it's worse to then question the character of God's goodness and what he desires and aims for us than it is to to doubt the existence of God. It's a hard truth, but if you begin to to think that God is not good for you, then he begins to turn into something that is the opposite of God. Whereas if you begin to say, uh, "I'm, I'm not sure God is there, you have at least not turned God into the opposite of what he wants for you. I think rescue is easier from that spot in which I'm not sure God is there than it is from the spot of saying, I think God is there, but God has intended harm for me. And that's the danger that Job walks up to in his dialogues. And his friends, I think, rightfully tried to bring him back from. Uh, They can't win that debate with him. All this and and not much of Elihu, I'm sorry about that. Um, The end of Elihu's speech, though, he talks about the storm. This is the fourth one. And Dave and I were talking about it before the service, but there's this way in which Elihu begins to look at the storm and begins to call Job into pondering things that are greater than him. At the beginning of the chapter after Elihu's speeches, and then God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. What I think is interesting that happens here is, This is just a thought experiment, but I like it, is that as Elihu is sitting with Job and his three friends, he sees the storm approaching. And the storm properly brings Elihu to wonder, love, and praise. And yet, instead of experiencing that, um, he uses it as a lecture towards his friend, which is, as God, whom he thinks he is defending, is coming near, Elihu looks at it and says, why don't you appreciate the storm more? You can see how this blinds us in some ways. He wants to, to draw his attention to that which is great, and yet Elihu's attention is not exactly on that which is great. And he draws Job's attention to the storm, and this will begin, um, Elihu speaks more truth here in this last chapter um, about what is going on. Um, and he points Job in the right direction. He points him towards um, what is going to happen next. Um, But I wanted to close today. Uh, Not many answers today. (laughs) Um, Not as much hope. Um, uh, But I do think that I wanted to close with one other thing. As as Job's friends become silent, and Elihu is the last one speaking, is, is this quote from Stanley Harwas, which I've used before, but I think it captures a lot of what our hope can be coming from the book of Job. Crucial for me is the presumption that the gospel is a story meant to train, train us to live without explanation. Explanation presumes that if I can account for why what happened did happen, then I will be able to live with what has happened. This is where I think our idea of heaven and all of it being able to make sense. Explanation um, is our hope. Um, in modernity, this hunger for explanation often takes the form of mechanistic cause-and-effect relations that ironically attempt to give people who have such a view of the world the presumption that they are in control. We'd love to be able to explain all the suffering in a way that we can finally have control over it. I think Christianity is the training to learn to live without being in control. You learn to live in the silences. And you learn what the politics of living in the silences might look like. But to learn to live patiently in a world where you have no answers, it seems to me gives you political alternatives that otherwise would not exist through hope. That's what I conceive of what it means to live hopefully without explanation. You don't explain the death of a child. That will kill you. That will kill you. What Lewis's friends remind him of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or his prayer in the garden is that Christianity is the training to live into the silences, to live not in control of things, and to know that as we walk to those places, one walks with us. It's Christ who went to those places. It's Christ who experiences the lows of lows. In the words of the creed that we recite, he descended to the dead It is Christ who walks into the silences with us and that gives us options that wouldn't otherwise exist through hope. Let us pray. God, we have heard the words of Job's friends and his fourth friend. And I think we can find ourselves in each one of their ways trying to grab hurl of the world again. To try and make sense so that we can live in control that you cannot. But we, we await God as your whirlwind in which you will speak from us from. In which you will not provide answers, but you will draw us into the wonders and mysteries and the expansiveness of what you've done in creation. But so too as Christ lived through the whirlwind in the midst of the cross, so too we wait uh, for next Sunday, where we will hear your voice from the whirlwind and what might come from that. We ask that you be with us in our suffering that you guide us in our suffering, that you call us to live in silences that are hard sometimes, and that you are there with us. I ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.